other gospel, I think the most honest question or the immediate question that we would ask is, well, how do we know that your gospel is the true gospel and not this other gospel? Is How do we know that that's not the true gospel, right? And it's like Paul anticipates that question. And so he backs it up and he says, all right, all right, let me tell you how I know that the gospel I preach to you is the true gospel. And he says this, he says, the reason that I know that this is the true gospel is the gospel that I preach to you does not have human origins. That seems pretty straightforward, and I think we can buy that at face value. I mean, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection is made known to us by the will of God the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit, right? It is not something that has human origins. It's the gospel of God who takes on flesh and is born of the virgin, of a God who decides in that flesh to live in the world and to have his full divinity coexist with the full humanity so that humanity might be reconciled back to God. It's the good news that comes to the poor. It's the good news that it proclaims release for the captives. It's good news so that the blind might see again, so that the lame might walk, so that the prostitute might have dignity, and so that sinners might be forgiven. It's the gospel of the lost being found. It's the gospel of the prodigal being welcomed back home by the Father to, a, to open arms and to a massive banquet. It's the gospel of the forgiveness of sins that comes to us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's, it's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. The good news that there is nothing that you have to do, nothing that you can do, but nothing that you have to do to earn your place in God's household. That your place in God's household is secured by God's divine prerogative and in his prerogative has made his righteousness your righteousness. Christ's righteousness, we say, is imparted, is imputed to us so that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation and no place in ourselves to boast for what God has done for us. This is grace. This is the gospel. And this is the gospel that Paul preaches. And we can be sure when we hear about this gospel that it is a gospel that does not have its origins in a human mind. I mean, just stop and think about it for a moment. Is there anything, well, let me say it like this. Is there any evidence that you have from human history that would say a human mind would devise this system of religion? Right? Is there, what human evidence would you have for a human being starting with a religious system or for a religious system that is devised by a human being to start with grace? Right? For a, for a religious system that would start with loving those who have turned your back on them or on you. That would start with a God who comes for those who have walked away. For a religious system that would start with those who do not deserve it. That, that, would, that wouldn't look to the best, that wouldn't look to the brightest, that wouldn't look to the ones who by all standards seem to deserve it, but actually reaches out to those who don't deserve it. I mean, what, what evidence that do we have that human beings would devise this kind of religious system? I don't think we have much, if any, at all. Human beings, us, you and me, we tend to devise systems that are based on merit, right? That are based on what you do or what you don't do, on how you've 
proven yourself worthy of respect or worthy of honor or worthy of position or worthy of being welcomed or worthy of being invited, whatever it might be. We, we prefer systems where you have to prove that you have something to offer, that you've earned your keep. We prefer systems that are based on you making another person happy or another thing happy, right? Whether that's a god, whether it's a, a, a tribe, or whether it's a priest. This is what we do. The gospels that the world presents, the gospels that the world calls us to, are really gospels of meritocracy. It would be almost unfathomable for a, simply a human mind to come up with a system of grace. Where you don't have to earn your place. Where long before you even realized that you were loved, you were loved. That grace had begun working in your life. That God had been seeking you out when you had turned your back on him. Like, yeah, no, this is not a system that human beings would divide, devise. And so Paul says, this gospel that I preach to you, a gospel that is not based on law, that is not based on merit, is not a gospel that comes from human origins. And if we understand that gospel, if we've grown up in church, if we've heard it preached many, many times, then, then that makes sense. And we go, yeah, 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 I buy that, Paul, I got you. It is a gospel that is not of human origins. But then Paul adds another piece to that. He says, this is a gospel that was not, does not have human origins. And then he says, and I did not receive it from any man and was not taught. Wait, what? Paul says that this gospel that he received that does not have human origins is also something that he was not taught. Rather, Paul makes the claim that the gospel that he preaches is a gospel that came from Jesus Christ himself. Now, Paul is being very, very specific here. He is quite literally saying, I did not learn this from any human being. So if you go back and you read the story in Acts chapter 9 of Paul's conversion story, if you remember, Paul is traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus and he's going to try to find Christians who have fled Jerusalem because of persecution. So he's going to go to Damascus, he's going to try to find those Christians, capture them, imprison them, and then drag them back to Jerusalem for trial because of their worship of Jesus. This is his intent. On the road to Damascus, uh, Paul is blinded by a light, quite literally. And he hears Jesus say to him, Saul, Saul, so remember Saul, Paul, the two different names of the same individual, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then that voice, which is the Lord Jesus, that voice says, go into the city and wait for a man that I will send you. There is no mention in there whatsoever of that voice saying to Paul, this is the gospel. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Go into the city and wait for somebody there who will restore your sight. Okay. Well, we know that God then, later in Acts chapter 9, sends someone to Paul, right? Uh, Ananias is his name. So after he's blinded, Saul goes into the city, or Paul goes into the city. He's waiting there. God then shows up to Ananias and says, Hey, Ananias, uh, Paul, or Saul, uh, he's waiting in the city for you to go there. And Ananias goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know much about that guy. The only thing I know about him is he's quite dangerous and probably would want to kill me. So maybe not. And God says, Go. Just go. 
Ananias goes, finds Paul, lays his hands on Paul, and then prays, saying, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus Christ who appeared to you on the road to Damascus has sent me so that you might see and might be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. There, there's no mention of the gospel story. Within days of that, Paul is preaching in the city. Who taught Paul? Where did his information about the gospel come from? When did somebody sit down with Paul in a piece of paper and draw the diagram, right? Okay, there's a cliff over here, and then there's a cliff over here, and there's a massive expanse in between it, and you can't jump over it, you can't fly over it, you can't build a bridge across it. How do you get from here to here, and you're on this side, and God's on this side? Like, how do you do that? Oh, you can't do that, right? Well, there's a cross here, and Jesus lets you walk around. Like, who did that for Paul so that he knew what the gospel was? No one. We're not told of any instance in the Bible where Paul is explained or taught what the gospel is. What we're told by Paul himself is that it was revealed to him by Jesus Christ, whether that's through a vision, whether it's through a dream, whether through it's a, 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 a case of knowledge being imparted upon Paul. We, we don't know. But we simply are told that Paul was given the gospel by Jesus himself. And because of this supernatural revelation, the Galatians can trust that the gospel he preached among them is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay. Then what happens in the story is something that's quite interesting. It's actually very common. It's very common, but it's interesting how Paul does it. And, and, and what's interesting about it. it is because I don't think it's anything that we're going to go like, oh, that's unique. I think actually most of us will look at what Paul does for the rest of this passage as something that you and I have been told we ought to do as Christians, that this is part of our responsibility. And that's simply to share our story. Paul solidifies his claim that the Galatians can trust the gospel he preached among them by pointing to his own story, by talking about what God has done in his life. In other words, by sharing his testimony. Now, we all, well not all, if you have been in church, and particularly an evangelical style church, at some point in your life, you have been encouraged to write down, to think about, to share your testimony, or you've heard other people share their testimonies. And it's something that all of us really like to do. So at this point in time, I'm going to take this mic and we're just going to share our testimonies. Who's up first? Just kidding. That would be awesome though, wouldn't it? No, we're not going to do that. Everybody gets, feels a little bit uncomfortable when we do that. But... Here's what I want to say. We all have been encouraged, I think, at some point to think about our testimonies. And I want to offer a word of caution up front when we talk about testimonies. Now, this is going to feel a little bit weird. Like, what do, what's the caution about? This is a good thing. Yes, by and large, it's a good thing. But I think we have to acknowledge a point in time in which we live. We live at a point in history in which sharing your story and, or your truth or your path or your understanding or your whatever is, is not just valued, but is seen as, as a sign of extreme maturity or, 
or that kind of self-expression in which you're able to give words to your reality is something that others will actually pay money to hear from. Like, we love these stories. The person who can share about how they've overcome obstacles in their life is lifted up as the story. It's perhaps, some have argued, the only hero narrative that is left in our society. Right? The only hero narrative that we truly value as a culture is the narrative in which one person has an understanding about who they are. And there's all these forces trying to keep them from becoming who they truly are. And that person overcomes those obstacles and is able to express themselves themselves in a way that is authentic. Right? These are the stories that we love. These are the stories that are heralded as the hero stories. So the story of Moana, the movie Moana, this is the story, right? A girl knows deep in her heart that she is made for the ocean, but her family, her tribe, her tradition rejects that. They laugh at it. They do everything they can to keep her from venturing out on the ocean, but she will not let them stop her. And see, she journeys out onto the ocean and then she discovers the truth, not only about herself, but about her people. I mean, Moana, it's a great movie. Come on now. Let's be honest about it. But that's the story. Or, or, it's the story of Rudy. Come on now, right? No one thinks that Rudy can play football, and they're all just a bunch of punks, right? Because they say he's too small. They say he's not athletic enough. He's not strong enough. There's no possible way that Rudy can play football at Notre Dame. But Rudy knows in his heart that he can not the size of the dog in the fight, side of the size of the fight in the dog, right? So Rudy, despite all obstacles, goes to Notre Dame, tries out, makes the practice squad, the whole thing, right? And then Rudy gets to run out on the field and to play in two plays in a meaningless game that counts for nothing. And we cheer. Like, honestly, like, I love Rudy. There's nothing like with that scene at the end when the football coach kind of throws his hands out and Rudy runs out on the field and everybody starts cheering because they've been chanting, Rudy, Rudy. Like, my heart swells at that. But can we be honest? At that point in the game, Notre Dame was up 24 to 3 with 20 seconds left on the clock. It meant nothing. But it's the hero story. No one can stop him. No one can tell him what he can or cannot do. He knows. Let him live his story. Right. This is what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the age of authenticity. We live in the age of authenticity. And it's de- defined by this extreme self-expression. This hero story is the story of the age of authenticity. It's a story that we hold up as the ideal because that person can resist the forces that tell them who they ought to be, whether those forces are political or social or religious or even forces that come from their family. If you can resist this, you are a hero in our age. Now, this narrative is a narrative that you and I, we know well, we love, it's it's impressed upon us from multiple different angles. from advertising, movies, songs, T 
TV shows, stories. I mean, it's coming at us from all these different angles. And try as we might, you cannot resist it. It's the water we swim in. All of us hold to it in some degree. And that's not bad, but we have to acknowledge it. And we have to be honest about the impact that that can have on us. Because think about it, like that story, that narrative, that, that ideal pressed upon us. And then we come into this place and we say, share your story. And this is how we say it, right? You share your story. But your story isn't your story. It's wrapped up in the story of God. It's God's story in your life, right? So, so even just this small little shift that happens. And what the danger then is when we get up to talk about our testimonies or we get up to share our stories, good as it might be, we all know that Jesus ought to be the center, but we didn't saw these subtle ways make it about ourselves. So we still say, yes, Jesus saved me, but we try to emphasize the gory details of our lives in some weird shape that makes us the center of the story because people kind of stand back and be like, oh man, look at that person. Look how bad they were. Look how far away they were from God, right? So the story, you know, and, and, and we can see this in the stories that paraded up front, the stories we love to tell. We love the dramatic stories, but sometimes they have the unintended effect of centering the person rather than God. So we hear the stories all the time of, well, I was drunk every night and laying in a ditch or, you know, so much sex. Oh, so much, you know, whatever. And then you've got other people like cussing and fighting and cheating or, or maybe they're even more subtle than that. I used to be all about success. Like, that was the thing that was driving me. That was the thing that I was, and listen, I made a ton of money. Like, I had more than I could ever want. You name it, I could have it. I could go out. I could buy the big house in Tahoe. I could buy the trips to Europe. Sometimes I'd just fly there on a weekend because I could, and it was great. And we would go to Paris, and we'd have these little French baguettes, and they were wonderful. And then we'd fly back home for, by Sunday night so that I'd be to work on Monday, and then I'd make even more money, and I'd have all these cars and all this sort of stuff. But Jesus taught me that that's not all worth it, right? Like, Jesus gets tagged on at the end of going through all these gory details about our salvation. We hold these stories up and these stories sort of become the ideal. They become evidence for what Jesus can do. And yes, an amen to that. But I wonder if sometimes sometimes Jesus doesn't get lost in that. And sometimes if we aren't using those stories for the wrong motives. Now I also want to acknowledge that most of us, I mean I know a lot of your stories, I don't know all of your stories, but most of us, most of us don't have the, 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 the story with all the details, right? We don't have the lane in the ditch story. Most of us don't. And I think the pressure then that we feel is to dramatize our own story, right? So we begin to talk like, oh, I was so lost. I was so confused. I, I was heading down the wrong path, and just at the right moment, God saved us, right? There, there's this pressure that we feel because of the stories that are held up in church. There's a pressure that we feel to have the sexy testimony. And, and I think that pressure, underneath that, it's completely subconscious, but underneath that is, is as if we're, we're trying to say, look at what an amazing case I am. And it's still this pressure to be unique. This, this, this desire to be different, to stand out, to be special, or to use the phrase, to be authentic. 
But now instead of like it being the Moana story or the Rudy story, now it's the same type of story for self-expression. It's just got a religious bent to it. So what's interesting about Paul is Paul uses his story. But he doesn't do that. And here's why I believe that Paul doesn't over-dramatize his story. Paul is on the road from Damascus to Jerusalem. He's go- on this road, it says he's carrying papers where he has orders to which he can go and he can arrest Christians who have fled Jerusalem. Like he had to go through work to get those papers. He had to go through legal channels. He had to convince the right people that this was a good thing to do. Like there's, this, there's all this like political background to Paul having those papers on the road. Paul went to, through extreme efforts to go and to get those papers. On the way to, to capture those Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem, he's blinded by a light. He then goes to a, he, oh, blinded by a light and he hears a voice an audible voice. He then goes and waits at an inn for a man to come. A man comes, lays hands on him, and as the man prays for him, something like scales come off of his eyes. You play that testimony in front of any church, and it's getting like, that one's getting some claps, right? Paul doesn't mention any of it. No, he does say like I was persecuting people, right? But there's no mention of the blinding light. There's no mention of the scales falling from his eyes. Paul just kind of lets that part of his story go. It's like, if it's, it's fascinating that Paul at this point in this, as in this telling of his story is focusing more on what happened after his conversion than before. And this, I think, is the point for us to, to reflect on. Paul isn't highlighting his story, but rather, Paul is using his story to highlight a truth about the gospel. And that's a subtle but but important distinction. The reason we share our stories in the church, in the world, in the midst of relationships, is to make much of Jesus and his transformative work in our lives because we believe, ultimately, that Jesus can transform lives. And so, yes, our story is evidence of that. But our story is evidence of that, right? It has to point ultimately to the fact that we believe Jesus can transform lives. And that's what has to be highlighted up. And we can see that this is something that Paul is even doing in this passage. And it's just a phrase that he uses near the beginning, but it's such an important phrase. It's such a powerful phrase. He says, he, he says this. He says, For you have heard of my previous way of life. You, Galatians, have heard of my previous way of life. Which implies that there's a new way of life. There was a previous way of life, and then Jesus happened, and these things happened afterwards. But that's the point. Like, there was a previous way of life. Remember last week when we talked about 
about how Paul sets up the gospel and he says that Jesus Christ came, died for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. And that, so that when Christ died on the cross, Christ inaugurated the kingdom of God in our midst and he invited us, through, by rescuing us, invited us to live in, this, in, the, in the age to come. Right? So you got this present evil age, you got the age to come. At the cross, the age to come comes and meets up with us, and Jesus says, you can come and you can live in the age to come. He rescues us from this present evil age. And if you remember, we looked at uh, Romans 12 too, which says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. Another way to translate it is, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this age. In other words, you don't have to live according to the patterns of this present evil age. You can live according to the patterns of the age to come. And when you accept the invitation to live in the patterns of the age to come, you will have a previous way of life, a previous way of living. I wonder... I wonder if you and I were to have the opportunity to sit down for a cup of coffee. And if I were to ask you the question, describe for me your previous way of living. What you would say. How would you describe your previous way of living before Jesus showed up in your life? How is it distinct from the way that you're living now? And I recognize that that might be a difficult question for, for a lot of us, actually. Myself included in that. It's a difficult question because, well, I'll speak strictly for myself and maybe you can identify with at least part of this. But speaking for myself, there's never been a time where I didn't know Jesus. Like I, I, used to, I used to have a lot of anxiety around testimony time or when people would share their testimonies or when people would say, hey, who wants to give their testimony? Because I always felt like mine was boring. Like if I were to give a truncated testimony like Paul did, right? So Paul's got extensive times where he's telling his story in parts of Acts. If I were to give an, a, a condensed version of my testimony, it would be this. I was born, four months later I was baptized, now I'm a pastor. Like, I've never been out of the church. I've never not known Jesus. I've never not known the gospel story. It's always been something in my life. And, and, and listen, there's nothing dramatic about that story. Like, if, I were to get up, if we were to have testimony time and I got up and I gave that testimony, I think there'd be a few like... Nice. Like, there's nothing dramatic about that. But if I'm being completely honest with you, that's the testimony I want for my kids. And I think most of us do, right? Most of us don't want the, like, the one with all the gory details. The testimony we want for our kids is there was never a time in which I didn't know Jesus. But I also think that that makes it really difficult to answer the question, what was your life, what was your previous life like? Or your previous way of living? Because here's the thing, when you grow up in the church, which for many of us is the case, intellectually, we've got Jesus and the gospel down. 
We've got all the Sunday school answers. We've got all the small group answers. We even got some really good theology down. Many of us know the Bible quite well. We can quote the Bible. And so the moment you get asked, what was your previous way of living like, that becomes really, really difficult. Even if we modify the question, we modify the question just a little bit. Instead of asking, what was your previous way of living like, maybe we could just simply say, well, what does Jesus mean to you? And again, for those of us who have grown up in the church, I think that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Not, I mean, difficult to answer with, with a level of honesty. It's easy to answer because we know the right answers. Like if I were to say, what does Jesus mean to you? You'd say, well, it means the forgiveness of sins. It means that I have eternal life. It means I have been adopted as a child of God. But then if I press just a little bit harder on that and say, yeah, 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 okay, I get that. But what does that mean to you? What does it mean to you that Christ has offered you the forgiveness of sins? What does it mean to you that you have the invitation to live eternal life? What does it mean that Christ is your brother and you have been adopted as a son or a daughter of God? Does it mean that the old is gone and the new has come? And if so, can you talk about that distinction? What does it mean that the old is gone? What has gone? What is new that has come? Does it mean that your heart and your mind are under constant reflection and participating in the disciplines of confession and repentance as you seek to live more and more like Christ? Well, what does that look like? What did you used to confess that you no longer confess? Because, not because you got tired of confessing that same thing so we've moved on to something else, but because there's been a victory that's been won there. But that sin has been removed. Can you tell me about that? Or, and this might be the hard one to come to reality, but something that we have to wrestle with. Or does it mean that my life relatively looks the same? It looks relatively the same as it used to. Maybe it looks a little bit different because there's more church sprinkled in or more church, less church sprinkled in, right? Depending on the life cycle of where we are with children. What does it mean? And the question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, is the gospel working in us and on us and through us in such a way that each and every one of us has a previous way of living. That if someone were to ask, is it true that the gospel has the power to transform, we could say yes. Yes, the gospel has the power of transform because in my previous way of living and now, In my previous way of living, I was self-centered and overly concerned about what people thought about me to the neglect of seeing the person right in front of me. But now, now I'm learning to love. Now I'm learning to be present. Now I'm learning to listen. In my previous life, I was angry and I was cynical about people, but now, now I'm learning to be hopeful and grace-filled and to trust the best of people. My previous way of living, I was skeptical of those who looked different than me, thought differently than me, believed differently than me, 
acted differently than me. But now I'm beginning to see the image of God in each and every one of them. In my previous way of living, I was skeptical of new faces in church. But now I'm beginning to be curious and wondering about what God is up to and how God might use them and what God's story in us might be because of them. In my previous way of living, I. How would you fill in the blanks? And, and listen, nothing that I'm doing up here is in, in the goal. Well, I mean, the goal that I have this morning is not to guilt you or shame you or, in, or any of that. The goal up here is not to say that we have to have these stories in order to be saved, but rather, because we are saved, we have these stories. Because we're attentive to the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, these things become a reality for us. Because we make good means of the use of grace, of the hearing of the gospel preached, of the sacraments and baptism and communion. That we, it's not just that we aren't the same, but it's that we can't be the same. Not when we truly hear the gospel. In my previous way of living, I, What would you share with someone? How might God use your story as evidence for his story? The truth of it and the power that it has to change lives. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. that each and every one of us is caught up in the gospel story, caught up in the story that began when you created the world, the story that continued through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, the story that was passed down through the prophets, the story that was embodied in Jesus Christ and was proclaimed by Paul, the story of God with us, redeeming and working to reconcile all things to him, including us. We give you thanks for this gospel. We give you thanks for this story. And I pray, Lord, that we be attentive to its work in our lives. I pray that we would take time to reflect and to wonder at the grace that has been given to us. I pray that as we come face to face with the perfect love of Christ, that we, like Paul, would have a previous way of living. It might not be as marked as Paul's. There might not be a clean line in the sand between what was and what is. But I pray that that deep gospel work would continue to grow us up into all things Christ. And may our lives be about proclaiming that good news. Proclaiming that we are just one of the many people and just one aspect 
of that which God is reconciling to himself. And that the work in our lives is a foretaste of the new creation that is coming. We thank you. We thank you for the hope that we have in that new creation. We thank you that the old will pass away in us, in the world, and that the new will come. This is the story. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.